Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, and research. Hello and welcome to the AUKUS Amplified Part 2 podcast regarding our series of the Part 2 board exams. My name is Brian Culp. This is the second part of our podcast process, and the first portion that we discussed is the collection process associated with taking your boards. And as we move on to this next portion, which is going to be once you've gotten your case list, how to prepare and submit your cases, we'd like to hopefully help you make that a less stressful and more organized process. Here today, uh, I have myself, Brian Culp. I'm now one-year board certified, and I'm private practice in Princeton, New Jersey. I'll let my other co-speakers introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Anna Cohen-Rosenblum. I am an academic attending in my second year of practice at LSU in New Orleans, Louisiana. And this is Josh Jacobs. I'm in my uh, 33rd year of practice as an adult reconstructive orthopedic surgeon. I board certified in 1990 and recertified through 2030. I'm currently the vice president of the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery and past chair of the Oral Examination Committee. All right. Thank you both. So for those of you who have an interest in going back and listening to the first portion of this podcast, it is on the AUKUS website under education and the Amplified Podcast link. Certainly, you can look back for the old records that you're looking for. Once again, our goal this evening is going to be kind of moving forward from the time point once you've got your case collection list and how to proceed forward. So that's where we'll take off. For starters, I'm sure many of you have done so already, but I would recommend going forward to the abos.org website where a large portion of this information has already been prepared very well by the board for your utilization. If you go to the candidates link under part two, not only does it offer you a calendar and a timeline, but it also offers some summaries and videos under the case list link of how to submit your cases, how to redact your cases, and ultimately some preparation tools for when you go and actually sit for your boards. I would encourage each of you to view those videos. Certainly our goal is not to be redundant, hopefully to add some pearls, maybe some questions that come up from Anna who is in the process of this herself that we can hopefully expound upon and make your experience better. So once you've got your case list of 12 and you've familiarized yourself with the website, uh, the first recommendation that I would suggest is that you actually go on to the submission platform and familiarize yourself with that website. There are upload links for not only the photos that you need to include in a typically in a JPEG format, and also PDF submission links for what your PDF documents need to come in. There's very specific naming nomenclature that you'll utilize for this, which we're going to go over in a minute, and then hopefully give you some tidbits on how to make it a little bit easier for yourself. As historically, most people prepared all their board packets in a binder. Perhaps Dr. Jacobs is familiar with this, putting a bit large paper binder together, actually printing out rolls of x-rays and bringing them with you. The board has made it very easy to do this all digitally now, and uh, that's the hope is that you can take advantage of that. Dr. Jacobs, I had a quick question. So going back to the 12 cases that are selected, I had heard that in the past they were... 12 cases selected, but that the candidate could select to throw out two of them that were not going to be examined. Is that true? And if so, why was the change made to just 12 selected cases? Yeah, that is true that in the past, cases were selected and then the candidates had the opportunity to exclude two cases. That uh, is not the case currently. 
I was not on the board at the time when the decision was made to discontinue that practice. I think that the idea was it's probably a fairer process that we simply uh, choose the cases and select the ones that are potentially the most interesting to the examiners and uh, give us the best insight into your practice. And over time, I guess it was felt that the elimination of certain cases might not have given us the optimal information that we were seeking. The uh, case selection process is done very deliberately and carefully. The uh, case selectors choose cases that are most representative of your practice, that we want to make sure we cover all areas where you're actually practicing, and we certainly are interested in cases that have had complications because that gives us the best idea of not only how you manage the routine, mundane issues that come your way, but also the more challenging issues that may present. I think it's a great test of your knowledge and skills and and how you're adapting to being in practice. Thank you for explaining that. So, Brian, when you embarked upon this process, about how much time did you allot for that, and how long did it actually take you to do all of this? So... I grossly underestimated the amount of time that I thought this would take. And I thought I could do this in a couple of days over a weekend, collect the data, make a big spreadsheet, make a big uh, packet of files, upload them and be done. And as it turns out, it took a lot more time than that. Even locking myself into my office for a whole weekend, two to three days straight, there were still a lot of loose ends to tie up, a lot of hospital things to acquire that I could not do through my office. And so I would argue once you get your timeline to do it as quickly as possible, but I probably spent 30 or 40 hours of my time prepping and building the packets that I would ultimately utilize to take the boards and then uploading them onto the internet. Uh, Brian, of that time you spent, what uh, proportion of that or how many hours did you spend in redacting the materials so that there was no protected health information? So... As I got better at the process, and that's what hopefully we'll elaborate on, the very first five to six hours were almost wasted because I didn't really understand the process very well. And so if we say 30 hours, I probably could have pared that down five to 10 more hours because as I got better, things got faster in the process. But probably the redaction portion of that was not a major portion of my process because I got good at it. The challenges I faced, which we're going to go into, talked about identifying pieces of paper that I did not have access to digitally that required me to go to a number of institutions and either manually print or uh, go to medical records. Or there were some aspects of that that because I have access to three institutions who are all on different EMRs, I had to learn how to do this with multiple EMRs. Yeah, there's one point I'd like to just stress that you made is that once you get your case list, once it's been selected, I strongly encourage each and every one of you not to wait, not to procrastinate, but to really start doing this almost immediately. The sooner you do it, the better. If you leave this to the last minute, it can create an unnecessary crisis. So I think that that's one thing I can strongly advise. I would also echo what Brian said regarding a real close perusal of the ABOS website. There's a rich array of information that's going to take you through all the processes involved in the oral examination. And furthermore, if there are any questions that are still lingering, calling the ABOS itself and having a staff member who is an expert in preparing candidates for the Part 2 exam, 
that can also be very, a very important resource for you. So again, start early, don't procrastinate, and take advantage of all the materials that are available from the ABOS website and from the staff. So then say you get your case list, when do you think would be a good deadline to impose on yourself, like I need to get all these cases uploaded and done by X date? When do you think is a reasonable and sort of a responsible time so that nothing is all happening at the last minute? Well, from my perspective, I would say the sooner the better. What you don't want to do is you don't want to have yourself up against the deadline with, say, two weeks or less, because it really can create problems, particularly the problems that Brian was alluding to. That is documents that you need from hospitals that you know may take some effort to acquire. I would recommend you start as early as possible and make sure that you budget your time to complete the process at least a month in advance of the deadline. Right. And the second that's in us and the deadline for images, if you don't want to pay a late fee is the 7th of June for next year, which this is all on the website for this nicely posted calendar. I think if you make a rule for yourself on, I'm going to do it that month, which is June 1st, you'll have a little bit of laxity to plug holes that you may otherwise have missed. The other thing I would say is that the deadlines are pretty hard and fast. And the reason the ABOS does it that way is we want to make sure the test is fair, that every examinee has the same rules applied to them. So you really do need to pay attention to those deadlines. Exceptions are very, very rarely made for those deadlines. So do not, do not expect that if you don't meet the deadline, that an exception will be made. Assume if you don't meet the deadline that you cannot do anything following that date. Great. So what I think I'm going to launch into a little bit is a little bit of how to maybe go about this. This isn't the only way to do this. This is a little bit of a summary of how I went about this, utilizing those same videos that we discussed that are on the ABOS website. Also, if you go into the case list link under the ABOS website under candidates on part two, and it'll say case list instructions. Uh, about three quarters of the way down the page, there's a very good description of the a proper naming structure that you need to apply to your PDF documents and to your JPEG documents. And if you can get in the habit of naming those things early in the right way, it'll keep you very well organized. And so, again, historically, with this was done in paper. I would argue that most of us taking the boards today are going to be doing this in a digital format. So I started out by building out a 12 folders on my computer, each of which had a documents tab and a images tab. And I started uploading those. I, there's a summary template that is available on the ABOS website. I downloaded a copy of that. I would start by getting yourself organized from the get-go on how you're going to go about this. I would then say you can start by either going through case by case or going through all 12 cases and doing documents first and redacting first. And I would argue that getting all the data is the first and hardest part, but it's tempting to do all 12. And one of the mistakes I made at the beginning was I did a lot of legwork up at the front, and then I went to finally get to submission and redaction, and I realized I had maybe done some naming incorrectly or missed some data points that I needed to ultimately go back and collect. So I would argue that you should try to collect the data for one case, maybe go through the module of how to upload these onto the website for the documents and also in the PDF images. And those upload categories actually are very well categorized or very well named so that you know I need these preoperative images, these intraoperative images, these postoperative images, 
pathology slides, operative reports, etc. They're named in categories that you'll be ultimately uploading your items into said categories. And so they'll tell you what you need as you go through the uploading process. I think the next challenging thing, and Anna might have some comments on how she's doing this in her hospital system. In my hospital system, we're on a number of EMRs, including Epic. Two of my other hospital systems on a bit more antiquated systems, and my office has a different system, so four different EMRs, each of which has different ways of extracting the data, whether it's to be printed, exported, or we'll call it jerry-rigged with my cell phone. And so we'll talk about that in a second. But I think that uh, as you go about this, you start doing your documents, for example, you should know that they all need to be done in a Adobe document format. There's a very clear naming structure, case-01, the consent and the date of which it was obtained, et cetera, for follow-ups, et cetera, for pathology, pre-ops, H&Ps, office notes, rounding, and everything thereafter. So I think if you can understand that in advance, it will help you as you go along. Yes, so luckily, and I just wanted- I only- I'm sorry, I just wanted to comment that there is a method to this madness, and that is having a very standardized categorization scheme and a standardized way of uploading this material. Not only does it help the examiner in terms of being able to find the material they need in an efficient fashion during the exam, but I also think it helps the examinee in terms of organizing the whole presentation of a case and knowing where the material is. And this makes the examination go much more smoothly when all the materials are organized in a standardized fashion. So while at first glance this may seem kind of rigid, in retrospect, I think it will make sense to you why we selected these standardized categories and why we selected this standardized fashion of uploading the material. And for those of us who are maybe a little less technologically inclined, Brian, can you kind of explain what PDF program did you use? Did you take screenshots of your EMR that you had and then convert that to a PDF? Or or how did you make that work? And whether you're on a Mac or a a PC? Sure. So I have a Mac and my office is based on the PC. So unfortunately, I'm cursed to use both. There's different tools that you can utilize for the submission papers that are the actual documents. And there's another set of tools that I would argue you should be able to use for the images. So let's start by answering that question regarding the paperwork. So the PDF documents that include your follow-ups and your pre-op H&Ps and your rounding notes and pathology slides or your pathology outcomes, all of those things are the things that you're going to be uploading into those respective categories. So how do you manage the paperwork? The tried and true old method would be and may still be for many people to go and print out each one of those documents, make a binder or make a series of folders and use a Sharpie and redact them with a Sharpie. And then ultimately, after you have redacted the patient's specific information, scan that back in as a PDF document for the paperwork. To your question, Anna, there are some other ways to go about doing that. For example, if you want to consider going onto the Adobe Pro website, I actually just bought it. I know there's a trial that you can get your hands on through the website, but it's not that much money to buy an Adobe Pro subscription and then subsequently cancel. But that can drastically help you by searching names, identifying the patient's name, searching it, and then just blacking it out through the Adobe Pro tool. That is probably the most effective way to do it and the quickest way to do it. Although I will point out that if you have the patients sign that release form prior to collecting, then you don't have to redact anything. Is that correct? 
Yeah, that's correct. And there's, as we stated on part one of this podcast, there is language on the ABOS website that you may wish to use in consent forms so that you don't have to go through this redaction process. But I do want to emphasize something that Brian said, and this is based on feedback that we received from fresh examinees, and that is that Adobe Pro Tool is very effective, and once you know how to use it, it's a very efficient way to do the redaction. And those candidates that have used that tool have found that it's not very time-consuming and also very effective in doing the redaction. But Adobe Pro is not sponsoring this podcast, just so we make that clear. <laughs> and I there's have no personal of- conflict. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately. There's also another set of tools that I would say is something helpful if you choose to print out, as I did at several hospitals. Again, I use Adobe Pro for a lot of these things, but some hospitals I could not export data in a PDF format. Some of my EMRs I could export in a Word format, and some of them were we'll call them image format, and the only way I could get them into a PDF format was to print it and scan it, and that may be true on some EMRs. So that may be something you're forced to do. Two of my hospitals, when they went to archive their things, scan them as images, and they could not be outputted as PDFs. So in that scenario, I think there's value to a phone PDF-style scanner. There are a number on the market. I used Cam Scanner, but there are a number on the market that enable you to take an image on your phone and turn it into a PDF. Microsoft Word also has the ability to export a file. If you go into the Files tab, you can export an item as a PDF. So I collected all the, the first step is to collect all the relevant items that you need, consents, follow-up visits, rounding notes, your pathology slides, your preoperative visits putting them in whatever format that you can get them out, ideally in a PDF, and utilizing that technology to redact. But for the people that cannot get their items out in a PDF format, that is where these secondary tools to scan, whether or not you have an office member who is a capable scanner that can dump them into documents for you, if you trust someone that well, or if you are particular controlling like I might be, I scan them all myself using either our office scanners or a PDF scanning tool. I wanted to add there is a free app I have on my iPhone. It's called Scannable, also not a sponsor of this podcast, but is a good way to take images using your phone and directly email them to yourself in a PDF form. The other question I did want to clarify from you, Brian, is how much staff help did you use? Because I've heard from different people that have gone through this process. Some people say, I rely totally on my nurse to get everything done, and it was great. And other people say, no, I really need to double-check everything. I did it all myself, and it took a lot of time. So what did you do, and what would you recommend? I think that if you have the luxury of some help in your office, most of us in our second year of practice may not have gotten that quite of a luxury yet, but if you've gotten that help and you feel like they're trustworthy, they're obviously trustworthy enough to scan them over to the hospital so you can operate on these people. So hopefully that they could be trustworthy enough to do some of that for you. But the ultimate buck stops with you. And so you're sitting for your boards. So certainly you should be scrutinizing everything and making sure that as you organize it, that you hopefully have seen them do it correctly. Yes. What I would add to that is this is important enough that at the very least, you need to carefully check any work that's been done for you by staff. We have had uh, examinees occasionally use the excuse when the medical records are disorganized or absent that 
oh, I didn't do it. You know, my staff just didn't collect the information I asked. Believe me, that does not go well during an examination. So as Brian said, the buck stops with the examinee. You cannot blame your staff, so it behooves you to review whatever the staff has done that you have delegated to them. You just cannot completely rely on them. Great. So we're going to wrap up talking about the documentation form. Again, we're just talking regarding PDFs that are utilized. You should certainly go on the ABOS website and understand how to properly label them so that as you upload them, you can label them as you go. It will help you if you understand how you label them as you go. It's very clearly written out. You know, It's case 01 consent underscore a date or case 01 pathology and a date. There's a very clear format. The earlier you do that, the better. I think if you familiarize yourself very quickly with your EMRs, they all will have a certain way that you are able to get that data exported. If you can export it as a PDF, that's the easiest way because you have to ultimately upload them as a PDF, and that enables you to go straight to Adobe Pro. But if you cannot export them as a PDF, then you should find a way to print it out, redact it perhaps the old-fashioned way with a marker, and then find an appropriate scanning tool, whether that's a traditional scanner or a phone-based scanner, to ultimately get them back into PDF format so that you can upload them into, into the correct buckets onto the ABOS submission website. We're going to move next into images, which is another critical portion of your submission through the same ABOS platform. Again, there's an additional tool here available to your use. The videos, once again, will show you how to upload images, and you can upload those images in a bulk format. If you have them organized very well in your computer, then you can up upload them in bulk. With the images and the PDFs, I did not ultimately upload them until the end of that month. I spent most of the month collecting them and organizing them. But again, maybe doing one right out of the gate might help you understand the uploading process, and then you can pursue the appropriate format as you go. I would approach the image process very much like a residency case presentation or a fellowship case presentation. The people that are going to be examining you want you to tell them the story. They don't have access to that patient, so they have access to what you provide. So I would provide them in conjunction with the appropriate documentation of your office notes, preoperative images. If there are operative images, those are valuable or po immediate post-operative images and then follow-up images. And certainly any patient who has a complication, appropriate images that go through that process as well. They're obviously going to need to be uploaded, and they typically are uploaded in a JPEG format. And how to get them into a JPEG format, again, is very unique to the very specific PAC system. If you have to export things as a DICOM or in another format, it's hard to get JPEGs out of there. So there's a number of tools. One is to speak with your PACS administrator or your practice image administrator and see if there's a way to utilize your existing office format or your hospital format to get those JPEGs out. I had a snippet tool that was built into my desktop here that is part of Windows, and that might be something that you can use in order to extract a JPEG. The, another very good way to do it, when you take a photo on your cellular phone, if it's an iPhone, for example, it comes out as a JPEG. So there's a number of ways to get JPEG images off the screen and onto your uploadable website. I would argue that printing them out is probably the worst and least desirable choice because the images are going to be blurry. And so you want to find another way to either export them as a JPEG or alternatively to take a photograph with your cell phone, a digital photograph, and then you'll have a JPEG. There are some tools that allow you to do screen captures as JPEGs. 
If you're a Mac user, that's a command shift and the number three. If you're a Windows user, that is a print screen type item. So there's a number of ways to get JPEGs off of your computer. And thankfully, the upload format, you don't have to redact your images on paper. The website for upload has an edit tool that allows you to draw a black box over your patient data and you can redact your images directly on the upload website, which will save you a tremendous amount of time, and I utilize that heavily. The next item to consider is obviously labeling. The images need to be carefully labeled in the same format as your other documents. So obviously it's a case number, a specific, we'll say, preoperative. For example, case 03, preop 1, preop 2, preop 3. So there's a very specific labeling structure that, again, is very similar to the format of our PDF that we utilized. Is there a limit to the number of images you can submit with each case? So the buckets or the boxes that you can drop the images onto on the ABOS website are pretty robust, and there's a number. So you can keep clicking Add More Buckets. So you can have, for example, you don't necessarily need to have one follow-up image. I took images at that stage in my practice at my follow-up visit of two weeks and six weeks, and I uploaded both of those follow-up visits. I think that more likely than not, there'll be plenty of areas for you to upload images, even intraoperative fluoro images, for example. There was plenty of room to upload those images. However, obviously, you're going to be the one editing, redacting, labeling all those images, so you might choose to be a bit judicious to save yourself some time. Again, the goal is to present a good story to the reviewer so that they can understand what your thought process was, your perioperative process, and your postoperative process. And you may choose to be judicious for both your time and their time. Dr. Jacobs, have you found that people tend to submit on the side of too many images and notes or not enough? You know, there's a spectrum of image submission from the candidates. I think that it's worse to submit too few than it is to submit too many because at least it gives you the option when there's sufficient images to make sure that the critical images are available and reviewed by the examiners. So I would agree with Brian. I think you want to be judicious in the number of images you upload. I think you want to upload the ones that are critically important. If there's a question in your mind, I would suggest you upload it. You can easily, you know, not have to include it in your story, in your case presentation to make it more efficient, but it's nice to have it there if you think you might need it. Great. So a couple more relevant items with regard to images. So there are various hospital rules on having redacted images exported from your hospital. And there is a way that you can ultimately sign an attestation form that is signed by your hospital tax administrator or medical records administrator that says something to the effect of that there may be de-identified images on your boards for their purposes of following hospital policy. So one thing I ultimately did when I took mine is that, again, I cover three different hospital systems. I made a form that says to whom this may concern regarding the x-ray identifiers that our hospital system de-identifies some of its images for patient privacy and to allow these to be accommodated for the boards because some of my hospitals may or may not have done that for C-arm images, for trauma care, for example. And I just had the hospital, I printed one for three hospitals, had the three hospital administrators sign them and uploaded all three so that I was covered on all basis. And that didn't take a tremendous amount of work. So that's one way to cover yourself with regard to 
appropriate documentation and HIPAA compliance. So before we move off the images, I just want to kind of go back and summarize images, and then we're going to go back to some chart-related information. So again, this is very much like a case presentation that you would otherwise have given at any other stage of your training. You need to have a good documentation and story so that the reviewers can understand your thought process and your care pattern. So that's how you should be thinking about getting your x-rays, your preoperative x-rays, any intraoperative x-rays, your postoperative x-rays. Familiarize yourself early with your PAC system. Utilize your hospital PACS administrator to figure out how to export JPEGs from the PAC system. Within your own hospital or office PAC system, again, utilize your in-office people to help you do that. If it's not easy to take a JPEG off of PACS directly, there are some strategies you can use. One is your cell phone. Number two is a screenshot tool. So for example, on a MacBook, command shift number three, or you can use a print screen on a Windows, or also some Windows have a pre-built snippet tool. So if you search snipping tool, that'll come up in your Windows if you search that in your start menu, and all of those ways create JPEGs. And then lastly is the redaction process. I would very strongly encourage you to utilize the redaction tool on the upload website. It's very convenient rather than trying to figure out how to redact multiple different forms of JPEGs. And then lastly, making sure that you label them correctly, store them in the correct format so that when you get to the upload process, you know which one is for which case. And if this is the pre-op film, pre-op film number one, pre-op film number two, so that the upload process goes smooth at the finish line. So we're going to move on now to chart information. And I know Anna had asked this question of me earlier. What type of things belong in the chart? What type of examples, for example, of a PE or DVT, do you submit the report? How do you get that data in to go along with your other documentation? So I would argue the best strategy, as I mentioned earlier, is that when you go onto the uploading platform, there are very specific categories for preoperative notes, preoperative consent, operative notes, pathology notes, culture notes, lab notes, post-op notes, and follow-up notes. If you have those in advance of going into this, you'll know very, very clearly what to collect, and you can provide appropriate documentation, a pathology report, or if you had an image such as an ultrasound to rule out a DVT, you can upload that as one of your post-operative Word documents into a PDF format. You'll upload that as a PDF document so that they can see that you triage for that problem. Do you need to actually upload the ultrasound showing for lack of clot, or does the report suffice? I'm not sure I would even be able to look at an ultrasound and tell if that had a DVT. So I uploaded just the document saying no DVT, and my reviewers seem to be very content with that. Yeah, I would agree. And I do not think uh, you necessarily have to upload the ultrasound in a clinical scenario like that. What about if you, let's say you have a prosthetic joint infection and you have culture results from your intra-op samples or an arthrocentesis, what kind of format do they want for that? Just the, the report is fine, the susceptibilities, everything. So I chose just to pick the one screenshot that had the culture name and susceptibilities, or if I had a cell count and differential that was in a lab result, I uploaded that. And I also made sure to include that within my case summary, which we're going to touch on in a minute. And also, when I gave my case presentation, I was facile with that information and gave that to the reviewers. I'm not sure that they actually looked at the document that said uh, the cell count was 
5,000 or white cells or something like that. But the data should be there so that they can find it somewhere and you should be able to tell them that data should they ask. Yes, you want to upload the critical data that you use or that a reasonable orthopedic surgeon would use and rely on to make the appropriate diagnosis. And one more question, not to beat a dead horse with this, but for example, if you have daily labs that you get for your post-op patients and they're normal and then you send them home, do you need to upload that? As opposed to if you transfuse someone and they have a low hemoglobin, you upload only in that kind of situation. So I did not upload daily labs. I also did transfuse many people, but I did not upload daily labs. The reviewers are going to be looking at this as if they were one of your attendings, for example, and reviewing your case. If there is a lab that pointed to why you did something, then go ahead and upload it. If the labs are all normal and you're not going to be contributing to your summary or to your story, then it's not worth wasting their time, in my opinion, or your time. I would agree with that. If there's a complication, however, the patient needs a transfusion, the patient's hyponatremic, some other lab abnormality, over anticoagulated, then I think you'd want to upload the daily labs pertinent to that abnormality. But otherwise, I would agree with Brian. I don't think you need to upload normal daily labs that have no impact on the care of the patient or the outcome. So the last couple of things we're hoping to touch on include uh, what if there's missing items and how do I handle that situation? Certainly as you get to the end of the submission process or the end of the build process for all your files, you're going to start realizing I'm missing this item. Maybe I couldn't find the consent or I couldn't find a pathology slide. Maybe it's been sent off to some folder in some archive somewhere. I would obviously start by reaching out to your hospital medical records professional that could give you some help. If you've done this in advance time, as Dr. Jacobs alluded to earlier, there might be time to call out that item out of an archive, then you can still have access to it, or they can seek it out for you, or they can reach out to the pathology department and get that report remade and reprinted for you. I would say definitely, if you can't find the document and the document doesn't exist, do not create a document. Don't create something to solve a problem and create another problem for yourself, or don't forge something. Uh, obviously, present the best and well-rounded data that you can. And should you come to that portion in your case list that you're missing an item, I would move on from that without changing anything. So you're saying First don't up, commit fraud, basically. Yes, basically. <laughs> I'll give you a good example. So there was uh, several patients of mine uh, I operated on on a Friday. My colleague was maybe on call and had rounded on that patient but elected not to write a note or did not enter something in the EMR or perhaps he said, I put a paper note in the chart and uh, it never really was able to be found anywhere. In that scenario, I couldn't create a note. The pa this was obviously months and months prior. When I got to that specific case in my case presentation, I just mentioned you know, the post-operative course and I summarized it, but I didn't have a document there and, and they accepted that. Yeah, and I'll just reiterate this. I said it during part one of this uh, podcast. The people that are examining you are real world orthopedic surgeons. They're operating, they're in practice, they understand the ebbs and flows of orthopedic practice, and they'll understand that you may have a missing document or two, because that's just the way of the world. So just be honest about it, make sure you're prepared to you know, discuss what might have been on that document, but uh, I, of course, do not create things that don't exist. That is obviously a no-no. Great. All right, so uh, we're going to kind of come to a conclusion here with regard to how to take it from your case list and get that information onto the computer system. 
again, I think that the most important thing that we are emphasizing to you is to start early and to develop an organizational system that will enable you to not have to do things multiple times. Every EMR and every PAC system is going to have a different format on how you can get data out and ultimately will therefore dictate how you can turn it into a PDF and or JPEG, depending upon which item you're talking about. And the redaction process will be somewhat dependent upon how that data was able to be exported from your EMR. But again, having a good orderly system of collecting the data, naming the data, and starting early enough that you can troubleshoot will really enable you to have a successful process when you prepare for your boards. And as Dr. Jacobs has said a number of times, there are resources available not only on the ABUS website, but actually even contacting the board should you encounter a problem. And thank you so much to Brian and Dr. Jacobs for explaining this. As I'm about to embark on this in a few months, I will do my best to utilize all these technological tips you gave us and also try to avoid any more forgeries. <laughs> and what I would like to say is just a, as a concluding statement, I really want to commend both of you, Brian and Anna. I think this is a tremendous service to the young arthroplasty surgeon in order to prepare them for a very important uh, watershed in their professional lives, that is the oral boards. Just uh, know that it is a very fair process. It is done with the idea that we're just really trying to help you and guide you through the process to perform the best you can and reach out for any questions you have. There's a ton of resources that are available from the ABOS. And if there's something missing, if there's something more that we can do, some additional information we can provide, please make that suggestion to us. And if it's reasonable, we will provide it. Well, thank you to Dr. Cohen Rosenblum and Dr. Jacobs for taking your time to go over this with our listeners. This has been part two of our part two boards on AUKUS Amplified. Thank you, guys. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.